Welcome to the Reduce Cyber Risk and CISSP Training Podcast, where we provide you the training and tools you need to pass the CISSP exam the first time. Hi, my name is Sean Gerber, and I'm your host for this action-packed, informative podcast. Join me each week as I provide the information you need to pass the CISSP exam and grow your cybersecurity knowledge. All right, let's get started. Hey, y'all, Sean Gerber again at ReduceCyberRisk.com. And a wonderful day in Kansas I have today, and life is good. Can't complain at all. And it wouldn't do any good anyway because nobody is listening about your complaints. They just want to hear all the good things in your life. <laughs> Actually, they're not even paying attention. In most cases, people are saying, how you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm good. But in, in reality, their lives just really stink. So no, <laughs> but I'm doing good nonetheless. So I hope everything's going well for everybody else out there in the world. And things are great here. From a cybersecurity standpoint, you couldn't get any better. There's actually, it's interesting how the world keeps changing and getting more and more connected. Connected. And as a result, there are lots of threats that are affecting cybersecurity. And if you're studying for your CISSP, as you well know, it's actually a great opportunity to get your CISSP. There's so many jobs that are coming open. It's, it just blows my mind. And But in many cases, you have to have a CISSP to even be able to play in this space. So therefore, it's a, it's a good thing that you're, you're working on your CISSP and the fact that you are trying to enhance your cybersecurity career. So it's, it's, it's good. Life is good. All right. So let's get into some more of our plans are for today. Today, we're going to be talking about disaster recovery and business continuity in our CISSP integration. The CISSP training is going to be conducting security control testing. It's all part of domain six. And the CISSP exam questions are going to be around CVSS common vulnerabilities, and then the scanning tools that are associated. So again, those are the CISSP questions. Also, listen to the as you continue to listen to the podcast, you'll be hearing I go over domain or exam questions as well on a weekly basis that are just kind of more to brief and to the point. And the whole point of it is, though, is they're just kind of a snippet of what I offer on my Udemy courses that you can get yourself. If you want the CISSP training that you can go and study and, and also use it to augment your CISSP studying, go to udemy.com. You can check those out there at and look for Sean, S-H-O. That's S-H-O-N. Yeah, I know my parents are unique. So I couldn't spell, so they made it phonetic. Sean. Yeah, I love it. It's great. Sean Gerber at udemy.com. Or you can go to my site at reducecyberrisk.com, C-I-S-S-P dash training, and you can actually have access to the training. You can go, but it's, it's, it'll take you to Udemy where you can purchase that, that training as well. So it's awesome stuff. I guarantee you it is a great training. I've done, there's like, probably close to, well, I think it's around 19 hours of training that you can get specifically to help you with the CISSP, each of the different domains that are there. And honestly, it's it is, it's bargain basement pricing that you will get at Udemy. And it's, uh, I mean, obviously they get a, they get a little bit out of it. I get a little bit out of it, but at the end of the day, you get a lot out of it. And that's the ultimate purpose behind doing reduced cyber risk and the CISSP training. So, all right, that's enough about the plug, but anyway, check it out. All right, let's move on to the training. Okay, in the CISSP integration, we are going to be talking from a reference of InfoSec Institute, and this is off 6.3, Collect Security Processes Data, and it's focused around disaster and recovery. So as you well know, working on your CISSP and studying in this space, especially if you're a cybersecurity professional, disaster and recovery is a key part of how you protect your data and ensuring that it is 
properly protected and available for people. And again, this comes down to the CIA triangle as it relates to availability. Having a disaster and recovery plan is a great first step to having a availability of the data. So testing on a disaster recovery and business continuity plans, they should occur. You should have these and you should do these and have these in place. And this comes down to you should have security assessments and testing that are set up to determine which disaster recovery or what systems need a disaster recovery plan and which ones need business continuity plans. And so so a little bit of background from a disaster recovery point of view, in the event of a disaster, you have to have the ability to bring critical systems back up in a certain period of time. Then a within a few minutes from a, we, and we typically call this an RPO, which is your recovery point objective to your recovery time objective, which is part of the disaster piece. And, and so therefore you need to have that in place. Well, you'll have to do an assessment and understand what does that look like from a standpoint of data recovery. And so you should, you can, should consider that. Also consider security control testing as well in your disaster recovery plans. Now, from a business continuity standpoint, you need to understand what are certain aspects or certain systems that need business continuity completed. Do, so like I say, you have a one complete system that needs to be, it needs to operate no matter what in the business. It has to be operational, has to be ready to go. And so that would fall under the business continuity. And that is a individual point system. Disaster recovery is kind of the more larger, broad brush systems that you would deal with. You also need to understand what are the security processes for data collection as it relates to your disaster recur- recovery and business continuity plans. Now, there's there's factors that reduce your DR plan's effectiveness, and these come into new equipment that you have in place, like new acquisitions. So if you don't have, if you haven't done a really good job of assessing whether these are critical systems or not, or whether they should have a good disaster recovery plan, that can limit your effectiveness of your DR plan. So in effect, basically comes into this. You have a system, and you said you have a DR plan for this system, and it's system A. Well, system B rolls into town, and you get rid of system A, but system A had a DR plan in place. You now have system B. Okay, A's gone, B's here. Well, what ends up happening? Well, you a disaster occurs and you go, oh, poo. We didn't have a DR plan set up for system B. And so therefore it's imperative that, so then the effectiveness is like, ah, I don't know what to do. Do you know what to do? No, I don't know. You know, what are we going to do? Those are bad things that run into, especially when things go south. So therefore it's important that any new equipment you bring in, you reevaluate the requirements and the criticality of that equipment. Also staff changes. When key positions that change, how does this affect your organization? So you have your main DR person within your company, and that person has the keeper of all the knowledge. They are the big brain that operates the the, the situation. And if you've seen Wizard of Oz, they are the puppet master. They're the man behind the curtain or woman behind the curtain. And so therefore, you need to understand, well, is that the right? If that person's gone, now what? What do we do? I don't know. So again, it comes back to that. I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of not good. So the point of it is, is that if you have staff changes, you need to prepare for that as well and have a plan in place to deal with the issues of individuals leaving your organization, especially if they deal with DR. Now, DR plan effectiveness, another thing that fact, a factor that reduces your DR plan effectiveness is shifting processing priorities. 
data center versus cloud processing. And when I say data center, obviously in the cloud, they're, they're one of the same. They're synonymous. It's just, is your data center on-prem in your environment that you control, or is it in the cloud and somebody else controls it? Or is it your cloud? Again, these are all different things that you need to consider when you're dealing with DR plan effectiveness. And so often people will migrate things to the cloud not thinking that, well, by doing that, do I incur some issues with my DR plan? And that kind of comes sometimes can cause a situation. Application complexity, automation and SaaS solutions, which is software as a service solutions, do they add complexity? Oh, yeah, they do. They do add a lot of complexity. And you need to understand if you're adding this new system that's in place that automatically pushes stuff to the cloud. Does that need to be DR'd? I don't know. Does it, should it have a good solution in place to deal, deal with it? Maybe. Don't know. So those are different aspects you need to consider as you're dealing with application complexity. And then legislation cha challenges or changes. That happens routinely. And if that happens, how do you deal with it? Recently, there's just been some, with the Chinese cyber law, they had some requests for out for comment, and that was supposed to be done by the end of June. So that has been completed. And now we're waiting on what is the final ruling on some of these things from the Chinese government. Again, legislation changes, even though they are slow to, to operate in some of these changes, but they have dramatic impact effects when they do make these changes. So changes in laws in all countries could have a dramatic effect on how you do business, especially if you're on a global basis, or if you are in country and you're you're trying to come to the United States because our data laws may change too as time goes on. Audit preparation, you need to prepare the team to meet any regulatory requirements that you may have. And this includes your ensuring your inspect your expectations are set that the team will not enforce the procedures. So you need to make sure that they understand what does it take. If you do not enforce these procedures, how does that affect you? What how does it deal with you? What are you going to do about it? And do you have a way to document in the event that someone did not follow these procedures? You need to make sure that people are prepared for it. And this comes down not to the team of your cybersecurity team. It could be just anybody within IT. It could be anybody within the business. I've recently been dealing with all of those things and the cyber legislation. I'm working all the way up to our board of our company because of these changes. And they affect not just IT, they affect the entire company. So those are important pieces to consider. Team members need fluency around internal audit, data security, and data processing. They're, they need to understand what are the different aspects around that and how do they manage those things. So they need to understand the vernacular. And again, I've talked about in recent podcasts, the main point is understand how to talk to people at a level they under, they are they can understand what you're saying. So they need to fluency on the cyber stuff and then be able to transmit that and translate that into words that the people can use. Outside resources can provide a little or a lot of technical assistance depending upon you if you want that or not from an audit preparation standpoint. That would be your ENYs, your Deloitte's, and so forth. They can help you with this from a preparation point of view, or they cannot. It just kind of comes down to what you want them to accomplish for you. Okay, that is what the uh, training I had from the InfoSec Institute from Cybersecurity Integration. And that was over Disaster Recovery Section 6.3. All right, so now we're going to roll into the CISSP training, and that is Objective 6.2, Conduct Security Control Testing Domain 6. Now, we're going to talk about vulnerability assessments. There's a physical assessment of assessment. That doesn't really work. That's not a really good word. What does that word mean? It was physical aspects. Aspects of an assessment, and uh, these are scanning tools. Penetration tests are big key 
physical aspects around an assessment. And if, if you just heard a groaning, it's from my dog. Sorry, my dog's in here and he's not happy that he's actually having to listen to cybersecurity stuff. There's assessment findings mitigations. So these are all the different things you need to be aware of as you're doing an assessment, a vulnerability assessment, from those tools to the penetration tests and so forth. Now, there's a common set of standards for vulnerabilities, and these can be all over the map as far as the standards for these vulnerabilities, and you just need to be aware of those. Now, some examples around this are your CVEs. Now, the CVE, in this case, the example I have is a CVE 2018-12345. What that is, is that's a nomenclature they have for the common vulnerabilities exposures. And these are what the governments have come up with, that these are some of the vulnerabilities that are out there. And this is the exposure to that. Now, it talks about a description of the vulnerability. It talks about references and how it got to that exposure a CVE number. These will typically go by the year, uh, 2018, 12345, 12356, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and so on and so forth. And they will then talk about the vulnerability and what are the issues. And you can reference these CVE numbers when you scan for vulnerabilities. And a lot of times a scanner will actually reach out and they utilize the database, the CVE database, to say, well, hey, XYZ vulnerability is tied to CVE 2018-1 or 2, 3, 4, 5. And then it'll kind of talk about talk about that a little bit. There's also a common vulnerability scoring system, and, and that's another one. So you got CVEs, you got CVSS. This is the principal character of the vulnerability. What is it? And it also ranks it on a scoring of the CVSS is from zero to 10 being the most secure or most secure, <laughs> most severe. That's when you really got problems. It's the apocalypse. Things are coming down. Asteroids from heaven and uh, plagues, locusts, and all those things is when you hit to range 10. When it's range zero, it's like, why bother even wasting my time? So those are the different CVS numbers that they have, but they, that's how they rank them. There's also many others as well that kind of talk about this, but your CVE and your CVSS are typically the two that are most used. Now, from a vulnerability scan, there's automatic evaluation of systems, applications, and networks. These automatic evaluations of these systems, you will automatically go out there, it'll look at them. Now, sometimes it needs to have an authenticated scan. And what that means is it may need credentials to actually do a full scan of what it needs to. So it may, as an example, a vulnerability scanner may just do a fingerprint of it. It may only get the operating system name. It may get a version of it. It also may not get the most accurate information if it doesn't have an authenticated scan. So that's something to consider if you're doing these scans within your environment is does it have to be authenticated to ensure that it's done properly. And typically set for a routine basis. You need to set these up so that they're done on a monthly basis. And in many case, cases, the, the scan is only good as the operator. I've seen it where the where a person will mash the easy button and they'll mash the button a scanner will work and they go, okay, here's your report. Well, that's really useless because sometimes the reports that kick out of these things are like eight gazillion pages long and it's just, it's not useful. So it's important that you have a good operator who understands the scanning piece of this. And there will be need to be some level of interpretation as it relates to the scanning and, and how what does what's actually occurring within the environment and how does that affect you. So vulnerability scans, again, they're they're typically done on a routine basis, but you you need to make sure that whoever does it is and I like to say we I mean I like to focus my company focuses on a thought process around entrepreneurship and that people need to 
own their product and you need to so if you have someone who's doing vulnerability scans for you if it's an internal resource they need to own their product and be able to provide you good results if it's a third party that's doing the scans for you due to regulatory requirements they need to give you a good product and they need to be able to talk to it not just say here here's your report and have a nice day checkbox complete they they need to be able to do a, a good product and give you a, or give you a good product and do a good job now from a network scan standpoint there are four main types you have network discovery network vulnerability, web application, and database vulnerability scans. The network discovery scan, now this is basically a different range of techniques around this, and it's looking for open systems that are open and potentially vulnerable, and ports that go to them. So you could have tons of systems that are out there, but if the ports are all closed and you can't get access to it, that's a good thing. But in many cases, that's not the case. In many cases, when you'll scan a system, you'll find out that there's gobs of ports open, which would allow potential attackers to get into your environment. Little Many companies typically do not have good knowledge around what are their assets on their environment. And so network discovery scans are important. Now, something to keep in mind with network discovery scans is that if you have older legacy systems, the new, legacy, the new network discovery scans that we have today are very, they can be a bit, what do you call it, uh, strong. They can cause issues with a, with environments is that they're too much and they can make things tip over because they're just so strong. So there's various scanning options that you need to consider as you're doing it. When you're putting these out there, just know that if you have old legacy systems and you're running a scanner, you could run into issues. So it's better to start small and work your way out. Now there's TCP SYN scanning, TCP connect scanning, ACK scanning, and then Christmas scanning. And obviously the TCP SYN, you're looking for a SYN and that will tell you that basically it's alive. If it, you're trying to do a connection, it'll actually connect to the device and then an ACK will, will go and acknowledge that it's even listening on a specific port. Your Christmas scanning basically means you you send the scan and it lights up like a Christmas tree. Yeah, that's usually not good. But those are the different kind of scanning options that are available for you with a network discovery scan. Network vulnerability scan, this is a much deeper than the discovery piece and it's looking for known vulnerabilities. So you're based on your CVE, CVSS uh, items, it will be looking for those vulnerabilities and it compares the discovery of the data to what's within the database. So if it finds out that there's issues with it, it will go and say that there's a problem with it and it'll tell you. This basically compares the discovery to the data within the database itself specifically. And author unauthorized scans typically are, are not as good. So therefore, an authorized scan gives you a lot more detail when you're dealing with a network vulnerability scan. You just got to determine if you can put the credentials in place to do that. Now, if you have to have certain level of credentials for that that are elevated, now you need to protect those in a way that it doesn't incur more risk within your company. There's various scanners that will help you do this. There's Nessus, Metasploit, Rapid7, Nexpose. These are all scanners that you can will provide you that level of detail. You just have to decide whether you want to use free or you want to use paid versions. The paid versions obviously can get very expensive, but they give you a lot more detail and they're more granular. Obviously, the free versions will give you something, but you, you got to ask, what do you need? Now, if you're just trying to do some basic maintenance and trying to understand your risk, Free scanners will work out well. If you're dealing from a standpoint of you've got exposure on the web and you have regulatory requirements, compliance requirements, you may want to invest in something different just because it, they, they typically are updated better with the database. They also will give you better support, those kind of things. So you got to decide what works best for you as you're dealing with network vulnerability scans for your organization. 
Web vulnerability scanning, this scans for vulnerable web applications that are on the internet. It's usually the first line that is attacked because the rest of them, they got to get within your network. The webs are out there and first, the webs, the, the web, the web vulnerabilities are your internet facing websites are typically the first line of, of attack because it's out there and available for people to go against. And in many cases, these provide valuable data on even how you do your nomenclature within your network. So if they can get, if, even if they can't leverage an attack against that, that server, it can give them valuable information of how your network is configured. And so therefore, if that's the case, if they do get inside your network through a phishing attack of some other kind, it can cause issues, right? They got more intelligence about your network. The other thing is, is that if you get your web server and it gets attacked and they can get access to it, it can cause reputational impact. So you need to develop a process on scanning sites to understand how vulnerable they are. You also need to have a process to, in place to scan your lab and your production environments from a development standpoint. It's important that you know what your lab environment and your production environment look like from a web point of view. Now, if you have a third party that's doing this for you, so you have a marketing company that's doing your, your web applications and do, are doing your front end for your, your websites, you need to make sure they have a good security program in place, and I would do an assessment of them to make sure they're managing that appropriately. False positives can and do occur. You will get false positives with your scanning engine, so just keep that in mind. It's going to happen. So you might chase a rabbit that doesn't exist. It's very possible, and yes, it will happen. So therefore, it's good to have multiple ta ideas, and using good scanners will help you with this, but I have seen really good, highly paid scanners or highly expensive scanners do give me all kinds of false positives. So it's how you, again, having a good operator that knows what they're doing will help you dramatically in this space. OWASP has a list of scanning tools that are available for you as well that you can utilize for your vulnerability scanning. Database vulnerability scanning, this typically contains some of the most sensitive data within your organization is within a database. And so usually they're internal and, and uh, that that's typically what's kind of buried in the bowels of the beast. And also because of that, it's internal. What also ends up happening is sometimes you don't even know they exist. So various cloud providers are changing this thought process because now we are getting more databases in the cloud, but you need to consider where do these databases reside. And in many cases, they are tied to various web applications. All right, that's all I have for the CISSP training today as we relates to vulnerability scanning. So we're going to now roll right into the CISSP exam questions. This is for domain six. Okay, in this question, we are going to be talking about CVSS. So when looking at common vulnerability scoring systems, CVSS, when a vulnerability is ranked 10, what does that mean? It's most open for patching, A. It's most severe, bum, 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 B. It's least severe, not a big deal, C. Or it's easily managed. Which one is it? It is B, most severe, right? That's the end of the apocalypse, locusts, plagues, big asteroids coming from heaven, not hemorrhoids, but asteroids coming from heaven. Yes, that is the most severe, ranked 10, that's bad. Okay, so CVS score of 10 is most severe, which is bad. Vulnerabilities. So what tool is commonly used to, as a scan engine to find vulnerabilities within an environment? A, Nessus. B, Nmap. C, Ping. Not the golf club, but Ping. D, DNS. 
And the answer is, dun-dun-dun, A, Nessus is commonly used to look for vulnerabilities within a network to determine if an exploit can be used against the system. Nessus, yes, I've used Nessus. It's a big monster tool, works like a champ, gives you all kinds of gobs of information, but if you don't know what you're looking at, it's just like looking at Greek. And honestly, there's people way smarter than me that understand that super well. But Nessus is commonly used to look for vulnerabilities, and ping is not a set of golf clubs. Well, it is a set of golf clubs, but not for cybersecurity. Now, if you like to play golf, good on you. All right, <laughs> so moving on. All right, this is the links we have for the NISC Square Training Study Guide, Quizlet, Disaster Recovery Journal, Person IT Certification, and OWASP. Thanks so much for joining me today on my podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on iTunes, as I would greatly appreciate your feedback. Also, check out my videos that are on YouTube. Just head to my channel, CISSP Cyber Training, and you will find a plethora of content to help you pass the CISSP exam the first time. Lastly, head to CISSPCyberTraining.com and look for the free stuff that is only available to our email subscribers. Thanks again for listening. See you. Thanks so much for listening today, as it was my pleasure to prep you for the CISSP exam. But are you interested in some free CISSP exam questions? Head on over to CISSPQuestions.com and sign up to join my email list, and you will gain access to 30 free CISSP questions each and every month. That's a total of 360 questions just for signing up with CISSP Cyber Training. You will also gain access to other free resources, so just head on over to freeCISSPQuestions.com or CISSPCyberTraining.com and sign up today. All right, have a wonderful day, and we'll catch you on the flip side. See you.